0: back to Talk Evidence, your monthly look at the world of evidence with some of BMJ's editors. After our recent listener request, we're feeling a bit inspired to pick some more non-COVID related core clinical topics this month. We're going to look at the state of the evidence on endometriosis, a common condition affecting people assigned female at birth. Joe's been looking at a paper which might be of interest when weighing up the adverse effects of possible harms of starting blood pressure lowering drugs particularly on falls and um, I'm gonna have to assign this one to you Juan has been being an EBM geek and going over a smattering of a whole load of methodological papers um, to give you some tips I'm Helen McDonald's content integrity and publication ethics editor at the BMJ and I'm joined by Juan Franco and Joe Ross do you want to introduce yourselves guys
1: hi Um, I'm the Editor-in-Chief of ev- BMJ evidence Based Medicine, I'm also a family physician and researcher at the Heinrich Heine University here in Germany.
2: Hi Helen, this is Joe, I'm a Associate Research Editor at the BMJ, along with a General Internist and a Professor of Medicine and Public Health at Yale.
0: Joe, you're going to start us stop this month by looking at adverse effects um, or predicting adverse effects maybe of starting blood pressure lowering drugs um, and I think a lot of prescribers are going to really identify with this conundrum that you have someone with persistently elevated blood pressure and you know it's a modifiable risk and you want to try and prevent cardiovascular disease um, but you have a slight worry that they might fall over or experience some harm of that medication. So tell us a bit about this study and what you thought it meant.
2: Yeah. And just, you know, by way of background, right, this is a one of the most common clinical situations we often find ourselves in, right? Here, you know, you identify a patient in front of you, their blood pressure is high, even if they're already on treatment, and you're faced with this conundrum. Do I increase the dosage or the you know the, the or add a new medication on in, ter- in terms of treating their blood pressure are they going to benefit from that or is it going to cause more harm than good by leading people to fall and have problems and so this was a really nice study it's a little bit intimidating i would say on first read because it's quite complicated that's why you're uh, here
0: to make it simple for everyone
2: you know i'm here to make things easy on <laughs> easy on the eyes right um <laughs> So this group uh, out of the UK they report on the development and external validation of a risk prediction model for pa- falls in patients uh, who you know may be indicated for blood pressure treatment, and it's quite broad in that they look at all patients forty or over with a elevated slightly elevated blood pressure uh, between one thirty and one eighty essentially. And they're working with uh, primary care data from using electronic health records contained within CPRD, the UK Clinical Practice Research Data Link. And they look to see, uh, to predict, you know, what's a patient's risk of falling uh, within 1, 5, and 10 years. And I just would note that it's really only the most serious falls that they're predicting the risk of. Because, okay. What, um, what
0: kind of falls are we talking?
2: Falls that result in a hospitalization. Okay. And so it's not like you know, you know, maybe you're making this decision. You have a patient, and they stumble and fall in the home. They're fine, a little bruising, but that can be, of course, a sort of a signal that they're, uh, you know, going to have a worse fall. But so these are not those minor falls. These are the only the most major falls, and they then are trying to understand risk by using a wide host of variables that are available within the electronic health record within CPRD. So it's like, you know, 44 different variables covering patient demographics from age and sex and socioeconomic deprivation, body mass index, clinical characteristics, everything from cholesterol levels to smoking status, and of course, comorbidities. And the most important being previous falls, along with memory problems or mobility issues, as well as uh, any prescribed drug, so they really you could say throw the kitchen sink at this. Ri- <laughs> you know what what can they do? And in and they do two things that I think are notable. One is um, the kitchen sink approach because they're trying to figure out like what what amount of sort of variation can they predict. The second thing that they do that's really useful is that their validation model uh, is actually a, a bigger population of patients than their derivation model, which is very unusual. So usually um, you know, when you're, you, within your derivation cohort, that's usually your biggest, and then you test it in an external cohort, and that tends to be like just other data that you can get used to. But they use two different CPRD databases, the, the CPRD-GOLD as well as the cprd AURUM, which is all patients when they're validating their risk model. And then they do a, something even really interesting, which is they predict their risk uh, scores versus Q-Risk, which is another sort of UK-based risk prediction model. You know, at the end of the day, um, I think what is useful to say is, you know, only 5% of patients had this more, more serious types of falls. Their models work well in the sense of sort of predicting the accounting for the amount of variation that would be expected in terms of, you know, throwing everything in there. They provide links to their model and to their algorithms that allow other people to use it. And of course you know age is probably the most strongest predictor as you as as you would expect when when thinking about this along with other variables so there's there's a lot here uh i think it's clinically useful but really i think the most It's only useful in the sense of going in and using it and, you know, inputting the data in order to predict risk or uh, embedding it within an EHR. I think that's the sort of ideal solution, right? How can this type of model be embedded within an electronic health record so it's available at the point of care to inform a decision? Because You said this
0: has like 44 parameters so that the meaningfulness of trying to fill this in if you were actually trying to make that decision with someone. I mean, that would be quite... No, it's, it, it
2: it it has to be automated, right? In, in order to either make a different decision about treatment, or to give somebody uh, essentially, you know, advice around being more careful, right? So if you have somebody who may be at higher risk of experiencing a fall like this, maybe there's other things that should be done. If you believe the blood pressure needs to be more aggressively managed, maybe that's the patient you target for. Um, you know, having a you know a, a walker or putting handrails in their bathrooms, or you know other things. You know, advising them not to you know uh, you know go on long walks alone, right? Things like that, where you know that you give them sort of that sort of extra advice uh, around how to be careful.
0: So it doesn't have to be a matter of you prescribe it or you don't based on this thing. It's you prescribe it. You have a look at what the the falls risk might be, and then you can take that in a number of directions.
2: Well, I think any information like this is at, is, is generated at the population, mm-hmm. but then you, as the physician, have to tailor it to the individual. And every individual's risk benefit calculus is going to be slightly different, right? So, if it, you get an estimate number and it's off the charts, and the patient's was at low cardiovascular risk, the treating a blood pressure of 140 may not be worthwhile, right? But if they're, you know, they have, uh, you know, bad heart failure maybe they had a heart attack a couple of years ago, their blood pressure is still a little bit elevated, and so you're really concerned about controlling it, um, and their risk is elevated but not substantially elevated, well, then you're sort of maybe giving more guidance around how to safely be prescribed those medications. Mm. And 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 that's the, the risk-benefit calculus.
0: Brian, well, you've been very quiet. You look like you're very deep in thought. Are you going to say something very wise to us about this paper? <sighs>
1: Well, actually, um, I was uh, I was listening carefully to what uh, Joe was saying because um, it really uh, led me to what type of conversations we have with patients because all of these decisions, of course, depends a lot of what values the patients have of the, on this, right? And a lot of pe- people talk m- about uh, lowering blood pressure and it's not very important. And when weighted for the risk of falls, then it becomes... Uh, Um, quite clear that perhaps it's not necessary to initiate or to escalate uh, uh, treatments for high blood pressure. But at the same time, it might be the other way around. So people value things very differently. And um, I was also thinking within the context of all these discussions about uh, further lowering the threshold for treating um, blood pressure, especially all the conversations around the SPRINT trial, Um, And the recent long-term data from the SPRING trial that also highlighted that perhaps the benefit might be um, modest or or none uh, of lowering even more blood pressure. So I think that this has become even more relevant to think about not only the potential benefits, but also the harms.
2: Some of the um, strongest predictors in the model are things that you can't really do anything about, right? You know, whether the patient has multiple sclerosis, if they've fallen before. But there are other strong predictors that are, you know, more intervenable or changeable, you know, the a patient's, you know, history or current alcohol use along with other medications. So again, when you, if you estimate the score and you do believe their, their patient's risk is higher, maybe there's other medications that can be changed in order to add that hypertension medication on, the antihypertensive medication on. you don't it's, it's, nothing's happening in a vacuum, and everything has you know comes with the, the sort of the context of the clinical situation of the patient in front of you.
0: Next on our agenda for this week is endometriosis. Um, this actually isn't a research paper. It's a state-of-the-art clinical review published on the BMJ. And I really like these um, deep looks into uh, topics with, with a really lovely summary of all of the evidence available. And I. Um, i hadn't learned anything about endometriosis for ages so i was i was genuinely very um interested to to read this and to update myself in general um and uh learn some interesting things which i thought i'd share with you 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 may already know all of these things um although juan and joe's faces looking at me on zoom suggest that maybe they don't yet but maybe some of our listeners do (laughs) um but they know that it's common right you know it's common don't you um and, and this state of the art review outlines that um, endometriosis affects about 10% of women during their reproductive years, um, and, and it affects their can affect their life quite quite broadly. Often it starts in adolescence, and it says about half of people who are diagnosed with endometriosis experience pain um, as far back as that. Um, but then um, there are lots of symptoms and conditions linked to endometriosis, all of which more or less happen in and around the pelvic abdominal area. And I thought it was a useful one to pick out because it's it's a a condition that's going to interact with a lot of both general and specialist healthcare providers um, who treat um, biologically female patients of all different ages. And the authors are really upfront about the problems that they faced writing this review, which I think mirror the problems that you face in clinical care, which is that there's an awful lot of uncertainty here and I was kind of, I was actually quite shocked at how little data were available um, on this condition and how it pervaded really all of the areas of our understanding of it. So there was a lot of uncertainty about what caused it, how common it is, how we should diagnose it, how we should treat it, what you should expect over time Um, and they highlight really a A key thing was that the lack of a non-invasive diagnostic test creates a kind of insurmountable kind of diagnostic barrier and and difficulties in clinical care. And that seems to also be creating a lot of problems with um, with the generation of evidence here as well. And while I know um, you had noted that when you were looking at the piece, um, this issue with the diagnosis of the condition,
1: well, yes, basically because it, in outpatient care, it is very unusual that for a condition you, you would have to go into uh, diagnostic laparoscopy. So, um, it, and the discussions you have with, with patients that have um, pelvic pain and, and reaching the decision uh, as to whether enti- entire um, work with a working diagnosis as the pa- a paper uh, highlights in figure five, which is very good, uh, for those who want a, a quick summary of the paper and um and how much do you want to start working with that or whether you need to move into this more invasive diagnosis, which is very unusual and um, and many uh, m- many times this uh this um, decision to move to a more invasive diagnosis is led by either very um, a lot of frustration regarding the treatment effectiveness um, or the need to know what is going on. Um, And what is also frustrating is that even after the diagnosis, the treatment options may still be uh, frustrating for patients. So you cannot guarantee that after Mm -hmm. having the certain diagnosis of endometriosis, everything will be okay. As in uh, most um, chronic uh, chronic, uh, pain conditions, it is uh, a lot about uh, discussing with the patients what are the available options are and understand that the causes of pain are are, are, are multi-stranded and uh, require a multi-stranded strategy. And uh, and yes, and there was, so I, I was just thinking about that.
0: Yeah, and there is such a wide range of symptoms um, mentioned. You picked out some of the figures in the paper. Well, I don't know if you want to just pull out some of the common symptoms that and um, comorbidities that they've got listed on there because I think it just does give you kind of know them but when you see them written down it it does strike you that this there's a there's a lot there and as the authors say a lot of these symptoms are often quite stigmatized or or normalized which makes them very easy to dismiss just give us the highlights
1: well um the main clinical symptoms as uh, chronic pelvic pain and this menorrhea are the most common ones and those are uh, patients with endometriosis tells you that their, their family, their, usually their, their close family tells them, oh, but it's very common that you feel pain during your uh, menstruation or, or around certain times of the month. And, and they go around their lives for, for many years uh, um, thinking that it's just normal to feel severe, severe pain. So... It's just very difficult to to cross that threshold. of What it means to some of the discomforts associated with menstruation, and how much of it is an underlying condition, and for a, for a physician, it's also very difficult to entangle this entangle death. And other symptoms, for example, um, uh, dyspareunia and and fatigue, are less. Uh, perhaps you think of other diagnoses first. So I think it's very.
0: I really like the tip that they mentioned as well, writing it around particularly watching out for the nature of some of those conditions being cyclical. I thought that was a, although that's not a guarantee that it's going to be endometriosis, I thought that was a really nice thing to watch out for in those broad um, range of symptoms. Um, So some of the things that stood out for me was trying to understand better, I think, that endometriosis is quite variable with variable presentation at many stages um, of life and the real really the need to assess the problem very holistically and they contrasted some of the things like you can go in to do one of these laparoscopic procedures or to to have a look and see quite severe disease or you could see quite mild disease and that doesn't necessarily correlate with the symptoms that the woman um, is experiencing which which was also I think An interesting thing. There was a very interesting passage as well on um, pain. I like to understand what's causing things. (laughs) But um, there there was some interesting information there around um, the fact that new blood supply and new nerves associated with these endometriotic lesions um, can cause pain. But there are other things going on as well. So they talk about the fact that it can alter your central um, sensation of pain, um, so that you end up with a, quite a mixed type of chronic pain. That it can be nociceptive, neuropathic, or nocieplastic, which is that altered central part. Yeah, Joe, you look like you've actually gathered some thoughts now. He, he's
2: well, you know, I just remember from when I was training uh, in internal medicine, like the the sort of the physicians. Would sort of slam home the point repeatedly, like do, don't forget about endometriosis when you're talking about pelvic or abdominal pain, and the, the the remembering that you know a pelvic ultrasound does not necessarily rule out disease. It can help identify it more quickly, but you know we're talking about this diagnostic lapar, laparoscopy. Lap, laparoscopy. <laughs> oh boy, <laughs> um, but you know that that's not sufficient. Uh, you know to you, you start with the pelvic ultrasound. Ideally, that that can make the diagnosis, but if not, right, you can still have this working diagnos- diagnosis and and follow on down. But, you know, the the thing not to forget is just, you know, how disruptive this can be to patients and patients' lives, and the, they often end up, because the symptoms are vague and not specific, they, at least in my experience, they bounce a little bit from doctor to doctors trying to figure out, like, what's going on, um, and so it just it needs to be one of those things that's in the back of your head, like, don't forget about endometriosis.
1: hmm
0: and even when we got down into the treatment zone with your Cochrane and systematic review tendencies, Juan, I, I picked out there that they were saying the most recent review of surgery, um, which was, was posted on Cochrane for endometriosis-associated pain, was very uncertain. So that seems to be the mainstay of, um, of, the, of the treatment options um, available at that uh, surgical level, but the outcomes were very uncertain. Um, in terms of both pain and quality of life due to the low quality of studies available. And they talk more generally about how many studies um, which they had to look at to try and form this review were often from single centers. They were not necessarily randomized studies. Um, And many of the um, populations were focused around um, women who also had fertility difficulties, whereas some of those other symptoms that can be given people trouble were, were far less focused upon so where i finished was that well i think someone's got got a whole kind of career here surely <laughs> <laughs> trying to work out endometriosis because it's very common isn't it and and it's causing a lot of disruption
2: well i would just encourage everyone to go to the actual journal to read it it's an excellent review
0: So finally, to our kind of, uh, I'm going to call this one section on EBM geekery uh, via the lens of COVID uh, broadly, Uh, and we pulled out three papers here, which might be of interest. The first is the latest of um, the analysis papers as part of the BMJ's COVID inquiry. And it's looking at knowledge mobilization during the pandemic, and it pulls out a few uh, evidence kind of successes, which I thought I would highlight because they might be of interest to listeners. One was they pulled out the concept of adaptive trials, which were done during COVID. So instead of being entirely pre-specified and very linear in their nature, the idea of having trials that could be revised in light of changes. And we saw things like new treatment arms being added in and particular subgroups of patients being investigated more carefully um which also comes with some challenges that um you need to fund that kind of uh, work and explain it and carefully think through how you're going to make decisions and ensure that the trials still of high quality and you're not just meddling with uh, meddling with your science but that was uh that was an area that was really pulled out i don't know uh if either of you had any involvement or thoughts about adaptive trials over the pandemic
2: I've not run any adaptive trials. <laughs> I've run other types of trials. But, you know, I think that what I really like about these, and and it's the reason why we're seeing them increasingly emphasized by uh, people, I guess we call it sort of in positions of authority, right? You know, either the heads of uh, national research institutes like uh, NIH and NIHR or at, at the top of regulatory Um, like the FDA or the EMA is, that it allows for the kind of much more rapid deployment of evidence testing and generation, right? So if the infrastructure is in place and then the question becomes, you know, does drug A work for condition B, We can quickly move into bringing that new arm into the trial, updating the clinical trial protocol so that everybody knows that this decision was made and when and what the primary endpoints are going to be. And the trials themselves are already embedded within existing data networks so that for the most part, things don't need to be done differently in the sense of we don't hmm. need to meet with uh, patients you know for a long time prior to their enrollment all of the data that's needed is already there in the electronic health record we don't have to contact patients repeatedly over the course of their participation in the trial because you know the data on their endpoints and the outcomes are going to be extracted automatically this works exceptionally well in the inpatient setting so COVID was perfect for it in the sense like we could, you know, run these trials on different therapies for patients who are being hospitalized for COVID or other, you know, I think it, they built upon a network of patients who are being hospitalized for other pneumonias. And, and that works great. It gets obviously far more complicated uh, when you start thinking about treatment of conditions where patients uh, leave uh, the hospital or aren't even treated in the hospital. They're just treated treated in physicians' uh, offices, in part because, The quality of the data varies a lot and the issues around data fragmentation matter much more. In Europe and in the UK, you guys are very lucky in the sense like your data are very well integrated and you don't lose people in the United States somebody walks out of the hospital you know they may go to another hospital and those electronic health records don't communicate they may you know go to a physician's office which is on a completely different you know electronic health record portal their claims or data through their insurance company may or may not have the same endpoints that we were using as part of the you know the clinical trial that was when it was hospital based so it just gets more complicated in the US uh, but it is very promising uh, as an approach to do things better. Is
0: it a bit like I, as I was reading it I was thinking it's almost is it like the trial equivalent almost of living evidence in a way.
2: Well, I don't know that it's living evidence because every question has to start, you know, at a point in time. There's an you know a point true. and That's then true. and then it's you're still analyzing data at a, no, a, another distinct point in time. It's not like a learning health system where, you know, evidence is just automatically accruing. In this case, we are still running Randomized clinical trials, where people are randomized at the point of care, to deal with all of the issues that happen with confounding around treatment selection, uh, and so that evidence is better than "quote unquote" kind of real-world evidence. In that, it, it deals with selection Yeah, areas.
1: but I, I do I, I do believe that that there's a link there because if you are continuously, you have this platform in which people are randomized, and the condition the randomization is conditional to the probability of of, of success in the sense that you're more efficient because mm, uh, treat, uh, treatments that are less uh, effective are going out of the platform, and treat treatments that are that you're are going in. It sort of happens. For, I'm, I'm just thinking about the COVID uh, living guideline that is published at the BMJ. You sort of see that ranking where you have the interventions at the top that are the ones that are are uh, uh, recommended because more evidence came in and 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 pulled the recommendation in favor and the uh, n- interventions that beca- became um less effective um through the outcomes of of these trials were at the bottom because if they even caused harm so i think there's a link there and there are many possibilities but um there's also there are also many challenges because um the, this needs to be done really really well because otherwise the randomization um, could have many problems if the statistical planning is not done adequately. And the traditional trials already have many statistical problems. And when we're running this one, you need uh, people who have experience running them. Uh, but the, And the, the example that the analysis paper used is the REMAP trial for community-acquired pneumonia. And I think that it's very interesting because it, it, there was already a platform and there was already an expertise but uh, in which... the the adaptive uh, platform trial was built on. So um, yeah, basically we need to build more capacity into running these trials, and we have to get used to reading them because they're not um, as straightforward uh, as as traditional A-B trials. Mm.
0: So it's interesting because a few of these things mentioned in the paper already existed, and it was a slight repurposing or, or reconfiguration of them. And another example they mention or pull out was opportunities for mass participation in research. And they mentioned the Zoe app, which was used over here in the UK, but it was developed before the pandemic for nutritional research. And it was converted to track COVID symptoms among people who um, both were experiencing symptoms or were, were, were conversely feeling, feeling healthy. I can't remember the question it used to ask me when I used to track on it religiously. Um, and the authors reflect on the fact that using that app was quite efficient um, compared to some other um, symptom tracking um, surfaces. They don't comment so much about the accuracy. I don't know if either of you has seen anything around that.
2: Well, I, I think we're about to enter into a phase of sort of explosive participation in research through apps like this. And, Back in the day, um, you know, people would participate like by you know part- uh, being on websites, right? I'm, uh, like the patients like me forum, where people would talk about the symptoms they were experiencing from their disease, and that information could be leveraged uh, to better understand disease pathology. I think there, we're going to see many more of those, and I think there's a lot of work that though that needs to be done in order to make sure that they work and to better understand not so much as their accuracy so much as their validity like because we know that you know everyone who signs up to participate in something on day one is not going to continue to participate through day 10 or day 30 what are who are the types of people who are going to continue to participate well how does that bias the data how can we still then use the data as an example actually I'm I'm working with the FDA on a very large study to try to understand, like trajectories of pain among people who were started on an opioid for a new condition. And we're using a similar type of app uh, called Hugo that allows patients to aggregate their health record data, but more importantly, to get questionnaires, uh, you know, daily at first and then weekly and then monthly. Um, And to that will, you know, leveraging those data will give us a much better sense of, you know, what happens to somebody who's treated with an opioid for pain? How often do they use it? Are they still, what else do they u- do to treat their pain? And it's very similar to the Zoe app that was leveraged for COVID. Like if patients were diagnosed with COVID, well, what were their symptoms? How long did they persist? Did they take other treatment? And, and what we're finding in our study, of course, is that human beings are fallible. They stop answering the questions, no matter how genuine they are at the moment of participation. And so, you know, what does this mean? How are the data still you know, useful? And it's going to be trickier to think about these apps as part of clinical trials, as opposed to being a part of observational registries. In the sense of, like, we have they're enrolled. We're learning something from the people who continue to respond to the surveys. But it's harder when we're utterly dependent on those data to make a decision of, you know, is A Mm. better than B for the treatment of, you know, disease D.
0: Yeah, and that's one of the things that the authors do reflect on. They say that the ZOE app showed potential of recruiting the public for symptom tracking as part of routine infectious disease surveillance and perhaps providing early warning signals. And as you say, Joe, it's a different thing, isn't it? Getting some early signals that w- which might be followed up with other work as opposed to trying to make kind of decisions about whether a treatment works or not based solely on those uh, data and, and there I may be see.
2: there may be other there may be certain conditions where people stay very engaged or continue to yeah. like and 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 in that case it's very useful to be you know use these apps as part of clinical trials. But in others where anyone you know the app is just advertised, anyone could just jump on and sign up. There's going to be you know dropout, and we just have to understand what that means. Yeah. yeah.
1: Not only that, but the, the the idea of of sampling in the sense, I think that the the, the concept we're 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 going around is sampling. It's not the same if you run a study if you recruit someone sign informed consent and then the app becomes a way for the patient to collect uh, to give their data and, and and thus it doesn't the patient does not have, need to travel to a healthcare facility or a research center to fill up some paper based forms and making them uh, their life a little bit easier which I think we are all, all agree that there's great value on that, although you also have this problem of people not filling out the forms anyway. Mm. But the other thing is people being recruited via an uh, an app in a non-probabilistic uh, way, then you would never understand how representative are those results with the general population. And perhaps these were one of the problems that some of these app-based studies had, because basically going in required... Um, it could, could be a bias selection of sampling.
2: Right. But I think we can all agree that moving towards patients being able to respond to surveys in their home through email or text is way better than making them come back to the hospital or the physician's office. We just have to work on how to do it as well as we can.
1: Absolutely.
0: We're going to stick with you, Joe, now because that paper also mentioned one of your favorite topics: preprints.
2: Yeah, so the, and
0: I'm not going to mention what that paper said <laughs> about preprints because we had another paper that you found about preprints.
2: Well, what I liked um, about the the paper that you know that the around knowledge mobilization is like it's not just about knowledge generation; it is also about knowledge dissemination, and so. Um, our, our listeners may not know, um, that, but I'm one of the co founders of MedArchive, a preprint for the health sciences. And this preprint platform was launched in collaboration with a couple of folks here at Yale, along with the BMJ, before I was actually an editor at the BMJ, along with the Cold Spring Harbor Labs. And it's just like the basic sciences preprint platform called BioArchive. And when we did all the work to launch this preprint platform, it was done before COVID. And then COVID came along um, and washed us in water that we hadn't been expecting a flood of information, and we had to learn how to manage it. But the preprint platform itself has demonstrated the utility of having a means of disseminating your work while it undergoes peer review, either at, you know, just among colleagues or even at a journal. And so um, they talk about it in this paper about sort of effective dissemination. And I think one of the big questions and concerns everybody has about preprints are, you know, what happens when bad information uh, gets disseminated to the public? And two, you know, how much, you know, are these preprints right? Like, should we be worried that, you know, lots of bad science comes out on preprint platforms, uh, and then it changes a ton uh, over the course of the, you know, the journal and editorial peer review process before it gets published? And
0: the second paper answers that question, right? It starts to look at that.
2: Right, and so, um, yes. Yeah, so this this is a nice paper that was just published in BMJ Medicine, our new BMJ journal. For all of you who are not yet aware of it, take a look, um, where they look at the consistency of COVID nineteen clinical trials with preprints and published reports, and. This is not the first study to do it. If any were you, uh, if any of you attended the Peer Review Congress meeting in Chicago that was jointly organized by JAM and the BMJ? I'm not BMJ.
0: many of our listeners to, went to that meeting. What? You,
2: no, people didn't go. <laughs> I was there, and you know, I, I enjoyed uh, Chicago. <laughs> deep dish pizza, sort of. Uh, it was better than I uh, expected. New Haven Pizza, where Yale is based, is the best pizza in the world. But um, I'll just note that there were a number of papers that were, are, you know, studies that were presented that are trying to get at this issue. How much do preprints change, uh, you know, from the time they're preprinted to the time they're published? And in this this uh, paper, they looked at specifically uh, 74 clinical trials that were first pre-printed and then published and find they don't change very much. Then that's consistent with studies we've done and studies that others have done where, you know, essentially there may be some changes on the margins. For instance, you know, maybe the sample size uh, is a little bit larger in the final publication than it was in the preprint, which you would expect, right? But when you look at some of the sort of core features... Why would
0: we expect the sample size to go?
2: Oh, if if they update their analyses as part of the publication process. So maybe more patients sort of were accrued into the trial or the the study, right?
0: Um,
2: But the sort of core features, you know, how Mm -hmm. the study... You know who was involved in the study. You know what was the main endpoint on which they were focused. What were the main results that they found? Right, those things do not change very much at all. You know, like there may be changes at the margins, but well over you know 95 percent of the papers draw the same conclusion in the preprint that they do in the paper you know drug a works or you know disease x causes this or is associated with this and if this. we're
0: being very harsh in the ebm light towards this joe is, is this sample of of papers in this paper 74 did you say is that enough to really be sure that there aren't you know going to be Unusual but marked changes in some studies.
2: It so this is small, but again, that's why I mentioned all of the other studies that have been done mm. on this topic because the findings are consistent. So, as an example, our team did a study way you know over a year or two ago where we looked at clinical trials that had been pre-printed and then published, and our findings are exactly the same as that, what this group found. Now a couple years on, um, we did another study where we looked at every paper that was pre-printed in September of 2020. Almost 80% had been published two years later. And we looked at not just clinical trials, but the observational studies and the systematic reviews that were posted. And those two, the results are very consistent. And this is not to say that things are not happening over the course of peer review to refine the paper and improve it. Analyses are changed or adjusted. That doesn't mean, though, that the sort of central take home messages are changing, right? So, or that the spin that you might read in the paper doesn't change, you know, it, it, it may be sort of mitigated over the course of peer review. Things do benefit, you know, the papers do benefit from peer review, but the take home message, with the results are that are, are found, and sort of that's, that's very consistent from preprint to, to final publication.
1: Yeah, I guess that the difference is if you're talking about the numerical data, and, and I think that if you look at the uh, at the paper, it's very reassuring that at least um, the, the main analysis do not change that much. And, and but to be honest, I'm still a bit a little bit nervous when I see a number uh, a difference in the number of participants who have an event between the preprint and the final version because well I, I i work the meta analysis basically so i i a lot of the times i look at the preprint and the final version and these are not studies that are still recruiting patients and, and they they're long finished and they're still in some cases there are 10 10 events in one in the preprint and 12 events in the final publication and i'm trying to say where do these two additional events come from and um where at the end the analysis still remains the same um I do believe that we're, we we can we can surely not say the same thing about the preprints that have not been published, right? Because uh, uh, this is like the survival sample of, of of preprints that.
0: That's interesting,
2: right? No, and and that's unknowable, right? Um, and, and that's why I I made that point that it's you know it's almost eighty percent end up getting published. Right, so but maybe those twenty percent we don't know yet. But this is across across the
1: the, the different types of studies. The eighty
2: percent, it's like seventy-seven percent or so. It's it's very high. Yeah, the but you know you know we don't know what's happening with those that other quarter, right? Are they just uh, never going to pursue publication? Are they have they been roundly rejected for being terrible papers? You know, one doesn't know. But the point being, as the scientific community we can sort of be a little bit assured that the utility of preprints is not leading to sort of massive problems down the line and that the information that's there as a preprint for you as a individual scientist to learn from it like that that's that's very valuable and and what these papers consistently show is that It speeds up by approximately six months longer, depending on the types of paper that it is. And so, in this one, it was clinical trials, and there was essentially six months between the preprint and the publication. And you know that can be valuable uh, in terms of a professional guideline that's meeting and trying to pull together information, or a a meta analytic team that's aggregating info to have it sooner. And but you know we're we're all learning around how to sort of think about and incorporate preprints uh, into the sort of the health science research infrastructure.
0: So we're sticking with trust for our last item. Joe's trying to convince us that we should have trust in preprints based on that last paper. Juan, you've been looking at trust um, at the systematic review level, um, and you found a paper on that. Tell us a bit about it.
1: Well, yes, this uh, paper: changing patterns in reporting and sharing review data and systematic reviews with meta-analysis of the effects of interventions—a meta research study. The reason I was interested about this paper is, well, well basically because that's pre pay job. <laughs> yeah. And oh, it is
0: a preprint. <laughs> right. I neglected
1: to. Oh yes, that, didn't it's I? A pre- Sorry,
0: Joe being <laughs> very smug about
1: that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a. It, it was originally posted as a preprint, but hopefully you will be able to read it at the BMJ um, uh, when the podcast comes out. And uh, what this uh, project tries to do is basically look at the repl- uh, replicability, reproducibility of review, uh, systematic reviews. And they've it been analyzing the quality of reporting and and transparency of reviews. So they took a sample of 300 systematic reviews from 2020. And they've analyzed uh, well, a very, uh, the the very detail of how the were reported, and um, and they also compare it with a sample from twenty fourteen from a previous study, of uh, of a smaller sample of, uh, uh, across one database.
0: And are they are things getting better?
1: Um, a little bit. Uh, so far, so uh, basically, the, the, the bottom line is that the author seems to be better reporting how they search and retrieve the, the studies. But the rest is mostly um, sort of the same. And basically, the systematic reviews, um, if, if you look at the results section, they they highlight uh, some of the topics. For example, they, they found that only 38% uh, provided data on registration. Um, 71% reported the full search that's what they improved from 2014 um uh, 62% provided data on risk of bias uh, 34% provided data uh methods used to prepare data for meta analysis and uh funding for 72% so Yeah, Some of these numbers are are very low, 38%, 34%. That means that there's still a lot of of room for improvement for systematic reviews. And that's especially um, important considering that um, traditionally we're moving the emphasis is EBM from reading individual studies to the use of systematic reviews and meta-analysis for decision-making. So we are are asking clinicians, uh, guide on developers and and, and other policymakers to read systematic reviews because they bring all the studies together and they can make a decision based on that. So um, basically, we need them to be top notch quality. And um, and basically that bring, brought me to the, um, I'm, the. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the AMSTAR two um, tool mm. that was also published at BMJ in 2017. And.
0: I'm going to bet Juan that many of our listeners are not familiar with that tool. Okay, but you can you 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 should tell them briefly what it uh, what the aim is. I,
1: I
2: think we should ask our listeners to tweet at Helen if they went to the peer review congress <laughs> or are familiar with the MStar tool.
1: I think I'll win that poll. <laughs> and so. <laughs> um, so basically, the AMSER2 um, is I'm, I'm, it's a, it's a tool to appraise uh, uh, Systematic Reviews, and it has 16 items, but I'm not going to read all of them. I just think that there are a couple of items that what is called critical domains that I sort of mentioned already. One has to do with whether the Systematic Review was um, uh, was had a protocol registered because they had plans of how to synthesize the evidence before Uh, doing uh, the systematic review. Uh,
0: And so this is giving you reassurance as the reader that they haven't just been manipulating all this data and coming up with something that suits them. They've set out what they were going to do and they've done what they said they were going to do. Yeah,
1: especially because one of the purposes of the systematic review is trying to get all the evidence for a focused question. And if you tweak your question in terms of what you're including and excluding, the results would be substantially different. There's another core criteria that has to do with the list of excluded studies that are very close to the topic, but, but we excluded them for valid reasons. So you can check for yourself whether those studies would have been worthwhile including. Um, and one of the items is the adequacy of the search strategy. That is the, the, what this study uh, published now at the BMJ is, shows that it has improved uh, throughout time. So basically I invite everyone to read the answer 2 and the summary of this core items uh, so they can screen a systematic review and figure out uh, whether it's good for them or not.
0: Well, that's all we've got time for uh, this week. You can tweet Juan or Joe with your experiences of the Amsterdam 2 tool or the Peer Review Congress. We'll see if we manage to find any of our listeners who were there or we'll know what they are. Um, you can also uh, like us, you can listen to us wherever you get your podcast from. You can write to us and ask us to look into something. Um, we'll be back next month with a look at the BMJ's Christmas research papers and a little bit of festive cheer. So until then, it's goodbye from me.
2: Goodbye from me. Goodbye from me.
0: Take care out there.